0: in children comparatively few children are renewed in infancy and childhood why it is an interesting question whether now there are any persons sanctified from the womb if the communication of grace ever took place at so early a period of human existence there is no reason why it should not now sometimes occur god says to jeremiah before i formed you in the belly i knew you And before you came forth out of the womb, I sanctified you. And of John the Baptist, Gabriel said to Zacharias his father, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. Prophet Samuel also seems to have feared the Lord from his earliest childhood. In later times, cases have often occurred in which eminently pious persons could not remember the time when they did not love the Savior and experienced godly sorrow for their sins. And as we believe that infants may be subjects of regeneration and cannot be saved without it, why may not it be the fact that some who are regenerated live to mature age? I know indeed that many conceive that infants are naturally free from moral pollution and of course need no regeneration, but this opinion is diametrically opposite to the doctrine of Scripture, and inconsistent with the acknowledged fact that as soon as they are capable of moral action— they all go astray and sin against God. If children were not depraved, they would be naturally inclined to love God and delight in His holy law. But the reverse is the fact. Perhaps one reason why so few are regenerated at this early age is, lest some should adopt the opinion that grace came by nature or that man was not corrupt from his birth. Some have opposed the idea that any are sanctified from their birth, for they fear that mere moralists and those religiously educated should indulge the hope that they were born of God, although they have experienced no particular change in any part of their lives, as far back as memory reaches. But allowing that some may improperly make this use of the doctrine, it only proves that a sound doctrine may be abused. All the doctrines of grace have been thus abused and will be as long as the heart is deceitful above all things. There is, however, no ground for those who are still impenitent to comfort themselves with the notion that they were regenerated in early infancy, for piety in a child will be as manifest as in an adult as soon as such a child comes to the exercise of reason, and in some respects more so because there are so few young children who are pious and because they have more simplicity of character and are much less liable to play the hypocrite than persons of mature age. Mere degeneracy of external behavior, with the freedom from gross sins, is no evidence of regeneration, for these things may be found in many whose spirit is proud and self-righteous, and entirely opposite to the religion of Christ." And we know that outward regularity and sobriety may be produced by the restraints of a religious education, a good example, where there are found none of the internal characteristics of genuine piety. Suppose, then, and in a certain case grace has been communicated at so early a period that its first exercises cannot be remembered. What will be the evidences which we should expect to find of its existence? Surely we ought not to look for the wisdom, judgment, and stability of adult years, even in a pious child. We should expect, if I may so, a childish piety, a simple, devout, and tender state of heart. As soon as such a child should obtain the first ideas of God as its creator, preserver, and benefactor, and of Christ as its Savior, who shed his blood and laid down his life for us on the cross— It would be piously affected with these truths and would give manifest proof that it possessed a susceptibility of emotions and affections of heart corresponding with the conceptions of truth which it was capable of taking in. Such a child would be liable to sin, as all Christians are, but when made sensible of faults it would manifest tenderness of conscience and genuine sorrow, and would be fearful of sinning afterward. When taught that prayer was both a duty and a privilege, it would take pleasure in drawing nigh to God, and would be conscientious in the discharge of secret duties. A truly pious child would be an affectionate and obedient child to his parents and teachers, kind to brothers and sisters, and indeed to all other persons, and would take a lively interest in hearing of the conversion of sinners and the advancement of Christ's kingdom in the world. We ought not to expect from a regenerated child the uniform attention to serious subjects, or a freedom from that gaiety and volatility which are characteristics of that tender age. But we should expect to find the natural propensity moderated and the temper softened and seasoned by the commingling of pious thoughts and affections, those which naturally flow from the infant mind. When such children are called in providence to leave the world, then commonly their piety breaks out into a flame, and these young saints, under the influence of divine grace, are enabled so to speak of their love to Christ and confidence in him, is astonishing, while it puts to shame aged Christians. Many examples of this kind we have on record, Where the evidence of genuine piety was as strong as it well could be. There is a peculiar sweetness as well as tenderness in these early buddings of grace. In short, The exercises of grace are the same in a child as in an adult, only modified by the peculiarities and the character and knowledge of a child. Indeed, many adults in years who are made as subjects of grace are children in knowledge and understanding, and require the same indulgence in our judgments of them as children in years. To those who cannot fix any commencement of their pious exercises, but who possess every other evidence of a change of heart, I would say, be not discouraged on this account, but rather be thankful that you have been so early placed under the tender care of the great shepherd, and have thus been restrained from committing many sins to which your nature, as well as that of others, was inclined. Evidence of a piety either the same at whatever period the work commenced. If you possess these, you are safe. An early piety is probably more steady and consistent when matured by age than that of later origin though the change, of course, cannot be so evident to yourself or others. If piety may commence at any age, how solicitous should parents be for their children that God would bestow his grace upon them even before they know their right hand from their left? Children should proceed on the principle that they are in an unregenerate state until evidences of piety clearly appear, in which case they should be sedulously cherished and nurtured these are Christ's lambs, little ones who believe in Him, whom none should offend or mislead upon the peril of a terrible punishment. But though the religious education of children should proceed on the ground that they are destitute of grace, it ought ever to be used as a means of grace. Every lesson, therefore, should be accompanied with the lifting up of the heart of the instructor to God for a blessing on the means. Sanctify them through your truth, your word is truth." Although the grace of God may be communicated to a human soul at any period of its existence in this world, yet the fact manifestly is that very few are renewed before the exercise of reason commences, and not many in early childhood. Most persons with whom we have been acquainted grew up without giving any decisive evidence of a change of heart. Though religiously educated, yet they have evinced a lack of love to God and an aversion to spiritual things. Men are very reluctant, it is true, to admit that their hearts are wicked and at enmity with God. They declare that they are not conscious of any such feeling, but still the evidence of a dislike to the spiritual worship of God they cannot altogether disguise. And this is nothing else but enmity to God. They might easily be convicted of loving the world more than God, the creature more than the creator, and we know that he will, will be the friend of the world as the enemy of God. Let the most moral and amiable of mankind who are in this natural state be asked such questions as these. Do you take real pleasure in perusing the sacred scriptures, especially those parts which are most spiritual? Do you take delight in secret prayer and find your heart drawn out to God in strong desires? Do you spend much time in contemplating the divine attributes? Are you in the habit of communing with your own hearts and examining the true temper of your souls? No unregenerate person can truly answer these and such like questions in the affirmative. It is evident, then, that most persons whom we see around us, and with whom we daily converse, are in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity. And continuing in that state where Christ is, they can never come. And yet, alas, they are at ease in Zion, and seem to have no fear of that wrath which is coming. Their case is not only dangerous, but discouraging. Yet those who are now in a state of grace, yea, those of our race who are now in heaven, were once in the same condition. Now, my leader may be a member of Christ's body and heir of its glory, but you can easily look back and remember the time when you were as unconcerned about your salvation as any of the thoughtless who are now fluttering around you. The same power which arrested you is able to stop their mad career, still hope and pray for their conversion. But tell me, how were you brought to turn from your wayward downward course? This, as it relates to the external means of awakening, would receive a great variety of answers. One would say, while hearing a particular sermon, I was awakened to see my lost estate, and I never found rest or peace until I was enabled to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Another would answer, I was brought to consideration by the solemn and pointed conversation of a pious friend who sought my salvation. While a third would answer, I was led to serious consideration by having the hand of God laid heavily upon me in some affliction. In regard to many, the answer would be that their minds were gradually led to serious consideration, they scarcely know how. Now, in regard to these external means or circumstances, it doesn't matter whether the attention was arrested, and the conscience awakened by this or that means, gradually or suddenly. Neither do the things that all assist in determining the nature of the effect produced. All who ever became pious must have begun with serious consideration, whatever means were employed to produce a state of mind. But all who, for a season, become serious are not certainly converted. There may be solemn impressions and deep awakenings which never terminate in a saving change, but end in some delusion or the person returns again to his old condition turns again to its old condition or rather to one much worse for it may be laid down as a maxim that religious impressions opposed leave the soul in a more hardened state than before just as iron heated and then cooled becomes harder in general those impressions which come on gradually without any unusual means are more permanent than those which are produced by circumstances of a striking and an alarming nature but even here there is no general rule the nature of the permanent effects is the only sure criterion by their fruits. You shall know them. The conviction of sin is a necessary part of experimental religion, all will admit. But there is one question, respecting this manner, concern in which there may be much doubt, and that is whether a law work prior to regeneration is necessary, or whether all true and salutary conviction is not the effect of regeneration I find that a hundred years ago, this is a manner in dispute between the two parties into which the Presbyterian Church was divided, called the old and the new side. The tenants and the blairs insisted much on the necessity of conviction of sin by the law prior to regeneration, while Thompson and his associates were of an opinion that no such work was necessary, nor should be. No, the opinion of the necessity of legal conviction has generally prevailed in all of our modern revivals, and it is usually taken for granted that the convictions experienced are prior to regeneration. But would it be very difficult to prove from scripture, or from the nature of the case, that such a preparatory work was necessary? Suppose an individual to be in some certain moment regenerated. Such a soul would begin to see with new eyes, and his own sins would be among the first things viewed in a new light. He would be convinced not only of the fact that they were transgressions of the law, but he would also see that they were intrinsically evil and deserved the punishment to which they exposed him. It is only such a conviction as this that really prepares the soul to accept of Christ in all of his offices, not only as a savior from wrath, but from sin and it can scarcely be believed that that clear view of the justice of God and their condemnation, which most persons sensibly experience, is the fruit of a mere legal conviction and an unregenerate heart. For this view of God's justice is not merely of the fact that this is his character, but of the divine excellency of his attributes, which is accompanied with admiration of it, and a feeling of acquiescence or submission. This view is sometimes so clear and the equity and propriety of punishing sin are so manifest, and a feeling of acquiescence so strong, that it has laid the foundation for the very absurd opinion that the true penitent is made willing to be damned for the glory of God. When such a conviction as this is experienced, the soul is commonly nigh to comfort, although at the moment it is common to entertain the opinion that there is no salvation for it. It is amazing and almost unaccountable how calm the soul is in the prospect of being lost forever. An old lady of the Baptist denomination was the first person I ever heard give an account of Christian experience, and I recollect that she said that she was so deeply convinced that she should be lost that she began to think how she should feel and be exercised in hell, and it occurred to her that all in that horrid place were employed in blaspheming the name of God, The thought of doing so was rejected with abhorrence, and she felt as if she must and would love him, even there, for his goodness to her, for she saw that she alone was to blame for her destruction, and that he could, in consistence with his character, do nothing else but inflict his punishment on her. Now surely her heart was already changed, although not a ray of comfort had dawned upon her mind. But is there not before this generally a rebellious rising against God and a disposition to find fault with his dealings? It may be so in many cases, but this feeling is far from being as universal as some suppose. As far as the testimony of pious people can be depended on, there are many whose first convictions are of the evil of sin rather than of its danger, and who feel real compunction of spirit for having committed it, accompanied with a lively sense of their ingratitude. This question, however, is not of any great practical importance, but there are some truly pious persons who are distressed and perplexed because they never experience that kind of conviction which they hear others speak of, and the necessity of which is insisted on by some preachers. Certainly that which the reprobate may experience which is not different from what all the guilty will feel at the day of judgment, cannot be a necessary part of true religion, and yet it does appear to be a common thing for awakened persons to be at first under a mere legal conviction. Though man in his natural state is spiritually dead, that is, entirely destitute of any spark of true holiness, yet is he still a reasonable being, and has a conscience by which... He is capable of discerning the difference between good and evil, and of feeling the force of moral obligation. By having his sins brought clearly before his mind, and his conscience awakened from its stupor, he can be made to feel what his true condition is as a transgressor of the holy law of God. This sight and sense of sin under the influence of the common operations of the Spirit of God is what is usually styled conviction of sin and there can be no doubt that these views and feelings may be very clear and strong in an unrenewed mind. Indeed, they do not differ any kind from what every sinner will experience at the day of judgment, when his own conscience will condemn him as he will stand guilty before his judge. But there is nothing in this kind of conviction which has any tendency to change the heart or to make it better. Some indeed have maintained, with some show of reason, that under mere legal conviction the sinner grows worse and worse and certainly he sees the sins to be in greater proportion as the light of truth increases. There is not, therefore, in such convictions, however clear and strong, any approximation to regeneration. It cannot be called a preparatory work to this change in the sense of disposing the person to receive the grace of God. The only end which it can answer is to show the rational creature his true condition, and to convince the sinner of his absolute need of a savior. Under conviction, there is frequently a more sensible rising of the enmity of the heart against God and his law. But feelings of this kind do not belong to the essence of conviction. There is also sometimes an awful apprehension of danger. The imagination is filled with strong images of terror and hell seems almost uncovered to the view of the convinced sinner. But there may be much of this feeling of terror where there is very little real conviction of sin. And, on the other hand, there often is deep and permanent conviction where the passions and imagination are very little excited. That a legal conviction is necessary to precede regeneration, but suppose there are cases in which the first serious impressions may be the effect of regeneration. I cannot, of course, consider any particular train of exercises under the law as essential, it has been admitted, however, that legal conviction does in fact take place in most instances prior to regeneration, and it is not an unreasonable inquiry. Why is the sinner thus awakened? What well, good purpose does it answer? The reply has been already partially given. But it may be remarked that God deals with man as an accountable moral agent. And before he rescues him from the ruin into which he is sunk, he will let him see and feel in some measure how wretched his condition is, how helpless he is in himself, and how ineffectual are his most strenuous efforts to deliver him from his sin and misery. He is therefore permitted to try his own wisdom and strength. And finally, God designs to lead him to the full acknowledgement of his own guilt and to justify the righteous judge who condemns him to everlasting torment. Conviction, then, is no part of a sinner's salvation, but the clear practical knowledge of the fact that he cannot save himself and is entirely dependent on the saving grace of God.